copy of God's Word, won't you go to Genesis chapter 5. Genesis chapter 5. I want to read verse 1 through verse 5. And talk this morning on lessons from an ancient genealogy. Lessons from an ancient genealogy. Genesis chapter 5, beginning at verse 1 through verse number 5. Let's look at it. If you there, say amen. It says, This is the book of the generations of Adam. In the day that God created man in the likeness of God, may he him. Male and female created he them and blessed them and called their name Adam in the day when they were created. And Adam lived 130 years and begot a son in his own likeness after his image and called his name Seth. And the days of Adam after he had begotten Seth were 800 years and he begot sons and daughters. And all the days that Adam lived were 930 years and he died. Father, today I'm thankful for your presence and I'm thankful for the opportunity to open your word. And I ask you today to open our hearts to receive, open our ears to hear what you would have to say. I ask once again, God, for your anointing and I pray that you would use me, Lord, to say what needs to be said. And I pray, Lord, that you'd put your thoughts in my mind, your words upon my lips and help me to speak no more, no less than what needs to be said. And I pray that you would change us today. I pray that when we leave, we can say, Lord, that we've been in your presence. And I pray today that, God, when we leave, we'll be different than the way we came. And so, God, now have your way. I pray today that you hide me behind the cross, Lord, that it not be me that the people hear from, but, God, it be you they hear from. And so, God, now I turn this service over to you, and I pray that your will be done. And, Father, we will praise you and magnify you for all that's accomplished. For we ask it in the mighty name of Jesus and the people of God said. Amen. You can be seated in the presence of the Lord. Lessons from an ancient genealogy. In all my years of ministry, I've never preached the message from a genealogy, but that's what we have here in Genesis chapter 5. Genesis 5 is one of those chapters that most people would be inclined to skip, especially when it comes to preaching. When it comes to your yearly Bible reading, if that's what you have a tendency to do, or when it comes to your time of Bible study, most likely you skim these verses, probably wondering why they're even in the Bible. But I promise you, God has a reason and a purpose for everything He puts in the Bible. All Scripture is God-breathed. All Scripture is inspired by God, and it has a purpose and a reason for being there. God isn't haphazard and God has a plan for everything that he's put in this book from Genesis to Revelation. In fact, if we'd be honest, for most of us, the genealogies are the most boring part of the Bible. So-and-so begot so-and-so, so-and-so begot so-and-so. And And let's just be honest, we kind of skim through those things because it has a lot of names that are hard to pronounce and we stumble through them and so we just kind of glance at it and keep moving on because we kind it rather boring, don't we? But when we come to Genesis 5, here's what we find. This is a list of the descendants of Adam down to the time of Noah and the great flood. This genealogy covers a period of 1,656 years. And though we don't know much about most of the names written in this chapter, they were pillars of faith in an increasingly godless age. 
They stood for God with such tenacity and in such a way that their names have been preserved for future generations. Think about that. God thought they, their names to be such importance that God recorded them in Scripture. That even though we may not know who they are, God knew who they were and He decided, hey, they need to be in the Bible. They need to be recorded in Scripture. And so this morning we're going to kind of look at this chapter and see what we can learn from this genealogy. If you're one to take notes, here's the first thing that we see from this chapter. First of all, we notice God's original intent for man. Look at verse 1 and 2 again. It says, This is the book of the generations of Adam. And the day that God created man in the likeness of God made he him. Male and female created he them and blessed them and called their name Adam in the day when they were created. Moses is the author of Genesis and he takes us back to Genesis 1 before the fall and he reminds us of God's original purpose for man. Notice it tells us that man is a created being. In other words, we aren't here by random accident or coincidence. We are here because of God's decision and choice. In other words, man didn't just appear by chance. He didn't just evolve through some freak accident of nature. He didn't come from some random evolutionary process. There was plan and purpose behind man's appearance on earth. The plan and purpose of God. Can I remind us today that we're not here because of some big bang theory. We're not here because of some freak accident. We are here because God designed us. We are here because God planned us. We are here not because because of an accident we are here because God said let us make man in our image and in our likeness man is the creature that God planned and purposed eternally long before the earth was ever founded God and God alone created man you are not a mistake you are not an accident God created man we're also told that God created man in his likeness Originally, God made man to be like Him. That means that we've been created with the highest dignity in nature possible. We're different than the animal kingdom. We're different than dogs and cats and birds and bees and all the other animals in the animal kingdom. We have a soul and a spirit and a body. We're different than every other created thing in the world. Also notice that it says God created male and female. From the beginning we see that God designed it so that a man and woman should be together. Anything other than that is wrong according to God's word. God didn't design two men to be together. He didn't design two women to be together. God designed it that a man and a woman should be together. Anything else besides that is wrong according to Scripture. He designed Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. God designed marriage to be between a man and a woman. Can somebody give me a big amen? That is God's design for the family and God's design for marriage. Male and female. That's the only way you can reproduce. That's the only way you can procreate. Male and female. That's God's original intent. God's original design. And when you start changing it, you're wrong. We see also that God blessed this couple. God blessed male 
and female. He placed His favor on them. And hear me, if you start messing with the way God ordained it, God can't bless it anymore. Think about that. He blessed male and female. Marriage outside of the way God ordained it can't be blessed. Amen? Does that make sense? Living outside of the way God intended it cannot be blessed. It can't be favored. God can't bless what He didn't ordain. You see, God's original intent for man was to live with a woman so that they could rule and reign and have dominion over this earth. We were supposed to go out and conquer the earth. That's why God created Adam to name the animals so that they could have dominion over the earth. Now we know that Adam disobeyed God and he turned dominion and authority over to the enemy. Which leads me to the second thing we learn from this. Sin was passed to all people. Look at verse 3. Adam lived 130 years and begot a son in his own likeness after his image and called his name Seth. We see here the birth of Seth. But notice that it says Adam begot a son in his own likeness after his image. Now what does it tell us about Adam and his likeness? He was created after what? The likeness and image of God. But it says that Seth was in the likeness of Adam. What does that mean? That refers to Adam's fallen nature. It refers to Adam's sinful nature. In fact, let me just share this with you. According to the Bible, there's really only two men in the earth. You've got Adam, and you've got Jesus. And you're either in one or the other. You're either in Adam, or you're in Jesus. That's it. We come into this world in Adam. But when you put your faith in Christ, you're now in Christ. There's only two men. You'll notice that it talks about in verse 1, this is the book of the generation of Adam. There's another place where it talks about another book in Matthew. This is the book of Jesus Christ. This is Adam's book. But there's also a book of Jesus. You're in one or the other. By faith, I'm in the book of Jesus. Amen? I'm no longer in Adam. I'm in Christ. And notice that, let me, oh, let me just say this. Jesus is not referred to as the second Adam. He's referred to as the last Adam. Why? Because there'll be no more Adams. Amen? You're not getting excited as me, but that, that, that's okay. But this is Adam's fallen nature. Seth was in the likeness of Adam. You see, a fallen father could only beget a fallen son. Does that make sense? A fallen father can only have a fallen child. A sinful father can only have a sinful son. That's why Jesus was born of a virgin, conceived of the Holy Spirit. Because he would be without sin. Are you following with me? Seth was the exact duplicate of what Adam was, both in his inner life and his outer life. He was therefore a fallen man. But here's the thing. 
so is every son and daughter of Adam since then. You see, we find ourselves here in Scripture as well because we're descendants of Adam. You see, Adam's disobedience passed his sinful nature on to everyone that would come after him. Here's what Arthur Pink said about the human depravity. He said, By sin, Adam lost the image of God and became corrupt in his nature, and a fallen parent could do no more than beget a fallen child. Seth was begotten in the likeness of a sinful father. Since Noah was the direct descendant of Seth and is the father of us all, and since he was able to transmit to us only which he had himself received from Seth, we have here the doctrine of universal depravity. Every man living in the world today is through Noah and his three sons, a descendant of Seth. We have all been begotten in the image and likeness of a corrupt and sinful father. End of quote. Let me explain it how the Bible says it. Romans 5, 12. When Adam sins and entered the world, Adam's sin brought death, so death spread to everyone, for everyone sinned. Here's how David said it, Psalm 51, 5. For I was born a sinner. Yes, from the moment my mother conceived me. Listen, any person born into this world has a sinful nature. A child doesn't have to be taught to lie. They don't have to be taught how to cheat. They don't have to be taught how to be selfish, do they? What some of the first words that our children learn how to speak? No. And mine? Why? Because that sinful nature has been passed on to them. We sin because we have a sinful nature. Right? Because of Adam's disobedience, he passed it on to Seth, and it's been passed on to every person since then. Sin has been passed to all people. You can't get away from it. Ever since Adam's disobedience, sin has been passed along to everybody. No person coming into this world can get away with it. Sin has been passed on to everybody. Only Jesus, born of a virgin, conceived of the Holy Ghost, came into this world without a sinful nature. He's the only one. Everybody else has a sinful nature. That's why we want to do wrong. That's why we want to chase the things of this world. Because sin has been passed on to us. But there's a third thing we can learn from this lineage, and that is this. God values family. God values family. You see, before God organized the church or government or any other institution, God designed and formed the family. God came up with the home. Family was God's idea. Think about that. In Genesis chapter 1, God told Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply, and that's what they did. Look at Genesis 5-4. And the, days of, and the days of Adam after he'd begotten Seth were 800 years, and he begot sons and daughters. Think about that. He begot sons and daughters. They were living out the command that God given them. Be fruitful and multiply. And that's what they did. All of the names listed in Genesis 5 are from the same family. And from this genealogy, there are several lessons about the value of family. First of all, letter A. Children are a gift and blessing from God. Amen? Now there may be times you may not feel like that. But God's Word tells us they are a gift and blessing from God. Look at Psalm 127, verse 3 through 5. Children are a gift from the Lord. They are a reward from Him. Notice this. They are a gift. They are a reward. 
not a burden. A gift. The King James and other translations says they are a heritage, meaning an inheritance from the Lord. Children born to a young man are like arrows in a warrior's hands. Notice this, how joyful or blessed or happy is the man whose quiver is full of them. What's he say? Sounds like to me the more you have, the more joyful and happier you ought to be. Doesn't that sound like what he says? How joyful is the man whose quiver is full of them. If you've had the privilege, and listen, it's a privilege to have children. You're blessed. Again, it's not a burden. It's a blessing. Because I know there's people out there in the world who would love to have children and cannot have children. Because according to this verse, and if you have children, it's because God has given you children. It's not because you chose to have children, it's because God chose to give you children. In other words, there's no such thing as accidental kids. Amen? There's no accidental kids. They are a gift from God. They are a blessing and a reward from Him. Amen? But let her be. Parents have a responsibility in the raising, or the proper word I should put in here, in the rearing of their children. Seth was born to replace Abel. We didn't talk about Cain murdered his brother Abel. So Seth was born in place of Abel. And we know that Seth was a worshiper of God and his offspring were those who followed God. The names listed in Genesis 5, they are believers. They followed God, they worshiped God, they lived for God. But here's the thing. How did Seth and his descendants, how did the people in Genesis chapter 5 know about God? How did they learn about Jehovah? They learned from Adam and Eve. They learned from their parents. Adam and Eve taught their children about God. They taught their children how to follow God, worship God, and live for Him. Now here's the thing. Not all of Adam and Eve's children followed God. Last week we talked about Cain and how he left the presence of God, how he rebelled against God and went his way to do his own thing. And apparently some of other uh, uh, of Cain's descendants decided they're going to go their own way and they went the way of Cain. And I talked about that Wednesday night. You'll have to go online and listen to that. But there's two great lessons that we can learn of, from Adam and Eve as godly parents. Number one, we must teach our children about God. Parents, grandparents, we have a responsibility to teach our children about God. We need to teach them to follow God, to worship God, to live for God. We need to teach them to believe His Word and His promises. But most of all, we need to teach them about Jesus Christ and that He is the Savior of the world. Listen to what Paul said about Timothy. 2 Timothy 3.15 And that from a child thou hast known the Holy Scriptures which are able to make these wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. Timothy from a child had been taught the Holy Scriptures. 
It is important that we teach our children the Scriptures. It is important that we teach them the Word of God from the time they are young until the time they are old. It's time that we put it in them when they are small. Listen, you can't wait until they're 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15 to start trying to put the Word of God in them. You have to start when they're 3 and 4 and 5 putting the Word of God in them. Amen? Because here's what I've seen so often in life. Because I've done youth ministry. And, and, and I've had parents want to bring their 13 and 14 year old and say, Preacher, you need to fix him. It's too late to try to fix them when they're that old. And listen, I, I, I'm not saying that God can't save them and God can't do something in their life. But if you neglect them when they're 2 and 3 and 4 and 5 and when they're 15 and 16, think that all of a sudden that, that the pastor and the youth pastor can fix them. You've done wasted 12 years of their life. Amen? When we take them from 3 and 4 up to 15 and we've, and we've put baseball and basketball and football and all that other stuff ahead of church and God and all of a sudden we want them to start chasing God at 16 and 17? It makes it difficult. And statistics tell us that if we don't reach people by the age of around 18 or so, chances are we never will. That's why when most people leave high school and go off to college, they leave church and never come back. It's scary. That's why we have to teach them when they're young, when they're pliable, when they're moldable and shapeable. Amen? Because let's be honest, as we get older, we get set in our ways, don't we? <laughs> oh, I know some of you not set in your ways, are you? But here's the thing. We are. You've got certain convictions. Where'd you get them from? Something put inside of you when you were a child. And nobody can talk you out of it. Why? Because mom and daddy put it there. We talked about this in our men's meeting this morning. That Sunday morning now is just another day for a lot of people. But if you were like me, raised in church, wherever Sunday morning you were took to the house of God. Listen, I was drugged to church. I was made to go to church. And I can't think of not missing a Sunday morning church. Because it was put inside of me as a child. You go to church. But our generations of the day, that it's just another day. We have to teach our children about God. And listen, if we don't teach them, nobody else will. I can guarantee you the world's not going to teach them. I can guarantee you our school system's not going to teach them. They've done took prayer out of school. And they're doing everything they can to try to remove God out of our school system. They're doing everything they can to try to remove God out of our nation. 
they're going to have a godly foundation, a scriptural foundation. It's going to have to be in the home. I can remember as a boy, every night before I'd go to bed, mom and dad would kneel down beside the bed and they'd pray. It didn't matter how late it was, they'd kneel down and we would pray. Listen, they didn't have this long, drawn-out thing, but five to ten minutes we'd kneel down and we'd pray. And I'm here today because of my foundation. Amen? I tried to run from it. I tried to get away from God. But I'm here today because I had a godly foundation instilled in me. But here's the second thing. We can't be discouraged or blame God when some of our children rebel and reject God. We have to remain faithful and continue to teach the truth of God's Word no matter what our children do. Because here's the thing. Cain was raised in the same household as Abel and Seth and Cain went his own way. Here's the thing. We can raise them as best we can to know God and serve God, but there comes a day they've got to make their own choice. Right? They have to make their own choice one day. Being raised in a godly home, being raised by godly parents, being taught the Scripture, being took to church, that all helps, but there comes a day they've got to make their own choice. And we see that in Adam and Eve's family. Cain decided, I'm going to leave God. I'm going to leave His presence. I'm going to strike out on my own and do my own thing. But Seth, he followed God. He led his family to follow God. And that's what we see in Genesis chapter 5. But here's the thing. When you begin to see your family, when you begin to see your kids, your grandkids go astray, you need to teach the truth even more. You need to be even more fervent in prayer. You need to begin to call out to God even more. You need to begin to plead the blood of Jesus over them. You need to begin to intercede and call out their names to God. When you begin to see them get involved in things they don't need to get involved in, you need to, listen, you need to have a place in your home where you can kneel down before God and you need to soak the floor with tears and cry out and plead God. Don't let my babies go to hell. Don't let my sons and daughters perish. You need to cry out for them and intercede. Amen? And when they begin to go astray, you need to tell them the truth even when they don't want to hear the truth. You need to tell them the word even when they say, I don't want to hear that, Mama. I don't want to hear that, Daddy. You need to preach it even more and tell them, hey, you need to hear this. Don't give up. Don't back down. Fight for your family. Amen? Let me move on. Number four. Death is inevitable. Look at verse five. All the days that Adam lived were 930 years. It's a long time to live, isn't it? But notice these three words. And he died. Lived almost a thousand years, and he died. Adam had been created perfect, and God's purpose was for man to live forever without having to die. But God told Adam, in the day that you eat of the fruit, you will surely die. In Genesis 3, 
the serpent told Eve, you won't die. But we see in Genesis 5 who was right. That's what Genesis 5 shows us. God was true. Satan was a liar. The moment that Adam and Eve ate of the fruit, instantly they died spiritually. But progressively, decay began to set in. And we read, and he died. It took 930 years, but he died, just like God said he would. In fact, eight times in this chapter alone, you read those words, and he died. Verse 5, verse 8, verse 11, verse 14, verse 17, verse 20, verse 27, verse 31. All of these different people. Talks about how long they lived, their sons and daughters that they've begotten, but you read the words, and he died. Methuselah, the longest man who lived 969 years, but guess what? He still died. Now we don't like to talk about death, especially our own, but one day death is coming. Death's coming. The Bible tells us that God has determined the length of man's days, and when those days are over, you're leaving this world. Job 14.5 says this, You have decided the length of our lives. You know how many months we will live, and we are not given a minute longer. Psalm 39.4 Lord, make me to know my end, and what is the measure of my days, that I may know how frail I am. Hebrews 9.27 It is appointed unto men to die once to die, but after this the judgment. From the moment of our births, we begin a countdown toward death. Hear what I'm about to say. Death is not an accident. It's an appointment. It's not an accident. It's an appointment. And that's going to be an appointment you keep. You might run late for other appointments in this earth, but that's going to be one appointment you keep. You can't escape it. God has determined it. You can't escape it. Every cemetery, every funeral home, every hearse you pass on the road is a reminder that death is coming. All because of sin. All because of Adam's disobedience. Death is coming. This life is nothing more than preparation for death. Are you prepared? You can be. You should be. You need to be. And I'm not talking about making funeral arrangements and picking out caskets and having flowers and who's going to preach your funeral. I'm talking about when you take your last breath, are you ready to meet God? But let me not leave us on that grim note of death. Number five. Walking with God gives us hope of eternal life. Walking with God gives us hope of eternal life. Let's go down to verse 21 to 24. And Enoch lived sixty and five years and begot Methuselah. And Enoch walked with God, notice this, after he begot Methuselah. For, for some reason, him having a child turned him to God. For some reason, he had a son. He said, I, I need, need the Lord in my life. 
He said he walked with God after he begot Methuselah 300 years. That's impressive. He walked with God for 300 years. And begot sons and daughters. And all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Listen, he only lived 365 years. This is the shortest life in Genesis 5. Verse 24, And Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Scripture declares twice that Enoch walked with God. Verse 22, verse 24. Walking means forward movement or steady progress. In other words, Enoch didn't walk a little while and then stop or turn aside. He wasn't fluctuating up and down. Enoch was genuine through and through. He was steadfast and persevering. He walked with God consistently. He was constantly growing more and more. But here's the question. What does it mean to walk with God? Well, I believe Enoch's life shows us, first of all, Enoch believed in God. He trusted in God. He put his faith in God. Hebrews 11, verse 5 and 6 tells us this, By faith Enoch was translated, he was transferred or taken, that he should not see death and was not found because God had translated him. For before his translation he had this testimony that he pleased God. What a testimony. Isn't that what you want God to say about you? That, hey, he, he pleased me, she pleased me. That's how I want to live my life, that I pleased God with how I live. And then verse 6 says, but without faith it is impossible to please Him. He tells us right there what it takes to please God. It takes faith. For he that comes to God must believe that He is. Or you must believe that God exists and that He is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. Enoch knew that Jehovah was the only true God and Enoch devoted his life to serving, worshiping, and following Him. Enoch trusted in Jehovah. Enoch trusted in God and walked with Him and followed Him. But secondly, Enoch lived a separated life in an ungodly world. You have to understand that this generation here in chapter 5 lived alongside Cain in his ungodly society. They're living side by side. Which leads to the problems in Genesis chapter 6 when the flood comes along. That's why God destroyed it. But Enoch lived a holy lifestyle. Enoch lived a separate lifestyle. In fact, let me say this. The world in Enoch's day wasn't much different than the world in our day. I said this Wednesday night, I want to say it again. Somehow we think that the things that's going on in our society today all of a sudden just started happening in 2018. Somehow we think that homosexuality is something new that just started happening in the last 10, 15 years. Read your Bible, and you'll find out it's not new. It was in Sodom and Gomorrah, and God destroyed it. In fact, when God sent the angels to Sodom and Gomorrah, the men of the city wanted to sleep with the angels. How perverted is that? We think abortion is something new. But they were killing babies in the Bible. There's nothing new under the sun according to Ecclesiastes. What has been will be again. Nothing new. It's the same old story. Amen? The same old story. Listen, you can take your newspaper and the Bible and you'll see that it all lines up. 
It goes together. But Enoch stood out in his day. He was a godly man in in an ungodly society. Here's what Jude says about him, Jude 14, 15. And Enoch also the seventh from Adam prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment upon all and to convince or convict all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed and of all their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Judas say that Enoch stood against and preached against the ungodliness of his day. In other words, Enoch wasn't out there preaching nice, cute sermons. He was preaching against the people and how they were living. Listen, if you walk with God, you can't walk the way the world walks. You've got to be different. You've got to stand out against the crowd. Listen, if you walk with God, you're always going to be going upstream. Always. Amen? But thirdly, to walk with God means to develop an unbroken communion and fellowship with God. The phrase walk with God means to walk about with God, to live with God, to have the most intimate fellowship and communion with God. Enoch did what we should do. He sought unbroken fellowship and communion with God. Listen, we should walk with God. In fact, let me just say this. Walking with God isn't something spectacular. In fact, think about this. Walking with God is nothing more than just steady progress with God. It's not a sprint. It's not a fast pace. Just steady, day after day, progress with God. Just being consistent. Just walk. Think about it. We want to take off like a rocket sometimes and do great things for God, but here's the thing. God says, I just want you to walk with me. Just walk with me. Nothing spectacular about that, is it? Just walk with me. Just commune with me. Just fellowship with me. And what's the result of Enoch's walk? He was taken. He was translated. Do you know what that's a picture of? I believe it's a picture of the rapture of the church. I read a story about a little girl. She was in Sunday school class and she said that one day Enoch was out taking a walk with God and one day they'd walked so far that God said, Enoch, you're so close to my home now, why don't you just go on home with me? And God took Enoch home with him. You see, that's what's going to happen, that one day Jesus is going to come back and if you've been walking with God, He's going to take you home with Him. Here's what the Bible says in 1 Thessalonians 4.17. Then we which are alive and remain shall be called up together with Him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. That if we live long enough and we don't see death, and Jesus steps out, there's coming a day that if we're walking with God, He'll call us home. We'll be translated. We'll be transferred. We'll be taken. We'll be no more. Because we've been walking with God. Walking with God gives us hope of eternal life. Here's what Matthew Henry said about Enoch. He said, He did not live like the rest, so He did not die like the rest. 
Can I tell you, if you'll, if you'll not live like the rest, you won't have to die like the rest. Heard somebody say this one time, if you're born once, you'll have to die twice. But if you'll be born twice, you only have to die once. Amen? But here's the thing, if you don't walk with God, you don't have hope of eternal life. You only have fear of judgment. I want to walk with God. And again, let me stress, it's nothing spectacular. I just want to walk with God just one foot in front of the other. Just walk with Him day after day. And here's the thing, nobody can do my walking for me. Nobody can do your walking for you. You have to walk for yourself. Just walk with Him. Just like Adam in the cool of the day, God come down and walk with him. God just wants to walk with him. In fact, the Bible talks about over and over again, just, just walk in the light. As he's in the light. Just walk in holiness. Walk in love. Just walk. Walk in the Spirit. The believer's life is referred to over and over again just as a walk. It's simple. Just walk. Can we do that? Just walk. In closing, I want to give you three lessons just to take away. Number one, people matter to God. Most of the names in this chapter we don't know. Listen, we know Adam. We know who the name Seth is, and we know who Noah is at the end of Genesis chapter 5. But all the names in between, we don't really know who those names are. We don't know anything definite about what most of them did. In fact, it doesn't list anything other than they begot sons and daughters and how long they lived and they died. That's all it says. We don't know any personal details. All we know is they're part of Seth's lineage. They live godly lives in an ungodly society. But here's the thing. They're heroes of the faith. And they're important enough that God decided to put them in His Word. Why? Because people matter to God. Secondly, death still reigns today. This list is like a monotonous drumbeat of death. Adam lived, he died. Seth lived, he died. Enoch lived or he, he was taken. Canaan lived and he died. Enos lived and he died. The only exception was Enoch. He was transferred, taken to heaven. Death reigned in the earliest generations of world history, and death still reigns today. And here's the thing when you die, the coroner, he's going to fill out a death certificate for you, and there's a space on that certificate that says cause of death. And if we understand the Bible, the answer is always the same sin. Not sickness, not cancer, not an accident, not old age. That's simply the symptoms of the great cause of death, which is sin. Thirdly, God honors those who live by faith. And it walked with God and He was no more. God rewarded Him for His faith. In Hebrews, the 11th chapter, the great hall of faith, the heroes of faith, Enoch's name is mentioned, Noah's name is mentioned. Anyone who walks with God faithfully will be rewarded and honored by God. In fact, the Bible tells us that when we get to heaven, we'll hear the words, well done, good and faithful. 
God will reward those, honor those who walk with Him faithfully. I want to say this, nothing matters more than living for Him. It doesn't matter if you're rich or successful. It doesn't matter if you become famous and you're blessed and you acquire worldly, worldly fame. You can be the best and the brightest. It will count for nothing if you don't remain faithful to God. Mark 8, 36 says, What shall it profit a man if he should gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Walking for God, living for Him is what's most important in life. Amen. And so if the list in Genesis 5 were extended out, would your name be on the list? I pray that our names would be on the list. And so I pray that God would help us to run with endurance. Again, this race that we're on, it's not a sprint. It's a marathon. It's a race of endurance. He that endures to the end shall be I pray we endure. I pray that we walk with God, walk faithfully to the end. And when we do, God will take us home. Amen. Would you stand with me this morning? Sister Janice, if you'd come to the piano.